everyone wants to feel like they're in control of their life, their surroundings, their reality. Of course, everyone wants to understand what's happening, why it's happening, and what will happen next, whether it's a relationship with a family member or a friend or a romantic partner or a job situation or a health situation or anything. Everybody wants to feel that they can shape their role in that reality, that they have the tools they need to move through the world in a way that is desirable and possible. We all want that agency. For people who never deal with mental health issues, this control is often just there. They don't have to acquire the control. It's built in. Factory installed brain feature. And they don't worry about it. For people with brains that are a little more interesting, the issue of control is absolutely something to worry about. To worry about a lot. Sometimes to the point where the worrying is so constant and pervasive that the worry itself becomes something to worry about. If you have complications with your mental health, the issue of whether you can control your role in the world is an existential question. How can you live unless you get it all under control? How do you live if you can't? And of course, these are the people for whom that control feature is not factory installed in their brains. These are the people least equipped to retrofit such a mechanism. These are people who have to work a hell of a lot harder in the world. I think a lot of those people are listeners to this podcast. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I am glad you're here. Jamie Loftus has had a journey of trying to get some control of her life and her mind. It's taken her to a lot of places, from filling just so many notebooks as a kid, more on that soon, to a very successful career in comedy now. Jamie's a comedian, actor, and writer. She's the co-host of the movie podcast, The Bechdel Cast, and she's made several amazing limited-run podcast series, such as My Year in Mensa, The Ack Cast, which is all about the comic strip Kathy, and Ghost Church. That one just wrapped up. Jamie also makes animated videos. This is from a series called Boston PD Zamboni Crimes Division. I'm Officer Crimes, and I'm Officer Get on the Ground, and we are the Boston PD Zamboni Crimes Division. All right, we've got the emotionally violent Zamboni in again. He refuses to go on the ice and keeps spraying it in the Bruins coach's face. Can you take this one? I would, but my emotional spectrum only covers guilty silence and punching trees. All right, Zamboni, this is the third time you're in this week. What's up? Nothing. It's not nothing. Tell me what's going on. You suck. As a man comfortable with myself, I feel fine telling you. That hurt my fucking feelings. You're being too sensitive. Can we get a less sensitive officer in here? What, I'm not good enough for you? Don't be so insecure. Why did you let those two in the same Jamie is from Brockton, near Boston. I knew she had dealt with OCD a lot in her life, and I had heard bipolar disorder was an issue too, although that one gets a little complicated. I talked to Jamie Loftus from her home in Los Angeles. OCD, I think, was always very... Um, in, I mean, reflect in 2020, <laughs> obvious in my habits. So I, it sort of manifested for me when I was a kid with obsessive documentation of things. And so it was like, as is often the case with OCD, like it was sort of mistaken for like precociousness and like, oh, you know, Jamie's very observant. She likes to write things down. And so I, I, I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, but I feel like I was also told that I wanted to be a writer a lot because uh. I was writing things down so much. But it was a lot of like, it wasn't anything physical. It was just like when I was in a room, I had to have a notebook with me and I had to write everything down that was in the room. I had to write down who was there, what they were wearing, what we were doing. Like it was just all very, and I couldn't leave the room until... I had that documented and it was a lot of copying books down in my own handwriting. It was copying TV guides into notebooks. It was just like very, very notebooks. I still have my, my parents kept all my childhood notebooks and which is sweet of them, but I'm like, these, this is, um, <laughs> these aren't kind good of memories. <laughs> freaky. Well, it's just, I like developed my own. I've in, in retrospect, I was like, 
all right, you know, there was some innovation going on. I like had to develop a shorthand because it's hard to write down what, you know, 30 kids in a room are wearing all the time. So I had like a system and I can still read my weird language, but I'm like, mm, I think that this is a kind of a hard nut to crack just to say yellow shirt. <laughs> It's like a language among twins, except there was only one of you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. How old were you when this when this started? I, I want to say second grade or that's when wow. I first remember getting in trouble for it or like not trouble, but like getting embarrassed by it because someone because someone found it. And so you're writing these in like little notebooks, little steno pads or what? Yeah. Yeah. It was just like little stationary notebooks. I remember like vividly the, the first time I got not, yeah, not caught, but like I was writing something down when it didn't make sense to be writing something down. And my teacher took the notebook. It was a Lilo and Stitch notebook. And she was like, what is this? And it was like in front of the whole class. And it was, um, you know, I reflect on it sometimes. Didn't feel great. <laughs> and yeah. Because it was just like, that was the first time anyone had ever asked me like, why are you doing this? And I like just did not have a good answer. Wow. Good movie, though, Lilo and Stitch. Oh, incredible movie. I it wish really that, is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So were you doing like transcripts of all the conversations people were having, too? No, it was generally, at least at the beginning of stuff like that, it was very visual. It was like I had to write down everything that was around me. What was actually what people were talking about. I think I was like, the problem was, among other things, was because I was so hyper-focused on writing everything down that I was seeing, I was not listening to anybody. <laughs> so I was, yeah, I, I wasn't very interested in what people were saying. I was just interested in like what I was seeing. It was like photography, basically. Kind of, yeah. And I feel like it's interesting because like as an adult, I feel like I've sort of veered off in the opposite direction a little bit. But I was very like into the visual as a kid. Did you know why you were doing it? Was there a thought process of, I need to do this because? I Yeah, I, I think that I sort of just bought into the idea that my parents, I mean, in they didn't recognize it as any sort of mental illness, but they, they didn't make me feel bad about it. They sort of tried to spin it as a positive. And they sort of, t and my, my dad was a journalist and I so I saw him, taking notes all the time when he was, when he was working or, you know, whenever. And so I sort of was like, well, I'm, I guess I'll, I, I, you know, they're saying that I do this because I want to be a writer. So great. I guess that that's what I want to do. But that paired with the self-consciousness of, I don't know why I wanted, why I need to write this down and it's not for anything, but I think I just like, wouldn't let myself even get that far it was like a very private embarrassment because it's like my family didn't even know what I was writing down they thought I was like writing stories and ideas and not like this like you know cryptex of second graders outfits yeah would you go back and look at the notebooks later mm, sometimes but mostly it was just like I had to do it to just so I could go to the next room and like go to the next moment and it was there was no grand plan it was not leading up to anything it was just like increasing numbers of fuzzy notebooks so many fuzzy notebooks and horse notebooks and uh disney movie notebooks just full of like yellow shirt jeans chuck taylors <laughs> <laughs> like over and over and over yeah and and lack of vowels i understand that wasn't that part of you would just leave yeah. out vowels okay yeah, at some point I was like, I know what I'm talking about. And also it's like, ideally, no one will ever look at this again because I wasn't reflecting on it. And I just always was like desperately hoping that no one would find them. Huh. And I, I'm trying to be careful in asking about something like OCD to to not overly apply logic to it, you know, to not say like, well, sure. what was how did you decide to do that? Because I understand that that that's not exactly how it works but was there a thought of what would happen if you left the room without documenting things yeah because sometimes you would have to you know and it would it would just really bother me and I think that 
if I knew I had to leave somewhere, it would just be a matter of, I will, I'll remember, like, I'll write this down later. And it would just be like, I have to like keep everything in my head so that when I got home or like whenever I could like go back and have it be there or at least document, like, I don't have records for this, 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 and just like have, you know, if there was missing data that I was, you know, referencing it in my, um, in my captain's log in case anybody <laughs> needed to know. And yeah, it was like that for years. Yeah. So that starts in second grade. How long does that last? Or do you have a notebook in front of you right now recording that I'm wearing a black T-shirt? <laughs> black T-shirt. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out what's hanging on the wall. Okay. Um, <laughs> How long did it last beyond the when it started in second grade? I want to say that went for a couple of – it went through elementary school. It was definitely like years that I was doing it. But I think that when I got to junior high – it had stopped by then and sort of, I don't know, I think that honestly, like, I think the calculus in my mind at that point was like, by the time I was in junior high, so many things about me were uh, weird that I'm like, I, I need to like stop doing this. I can't give people another thing. So that was the point where like the outfit documentation like that and then like the room documentation stopped. But I still kept like copying stuff down. It would just I it, I had to like evolve it into something that I could do privately and just so I felt like less of a flight risk in the classroom. <laughs> was it soothing? I uh, I thought so. I, I thought like except the only thing that sucked about it was like I mean well something that bothered me was the anxiety that I would experience if I couldn't or I like couldn't do it fast enough was really stressful. But when I was like pulling it off and doing it right, it would be like a release of anxiety to to have done it. And once I had done it, you know, I was like, I don't think really like my schoolwork suffered or anything like that, which is partially, I think, why it took so long for my family. I mean, I think that's part of why like no one ever viewed it as a problem. It was like, it was just something that I did, but I still did fine in school and like had friends that also didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I was like able to kind of play it off. You were high functioning. Yeah, which is, you know, I'm sure <laughs> as you've discussed, like it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So then how did you ultimately figure out that, hey, this is this is a disorder. This has a name. It doesn't have to be like this. This isn't just the way I, I am. This is something that I have. Mm hmm. That wasn't until I was in my early 20s. Like, it took a really long time. I had been in therapy at that point for, like, little dribs and drabs when it uh, happened to line up with my health insurance. But I'd, I'd never gotten much of outside of, like, you're a very anxious person and developing some coping mechanisms around that. But, I mean, I, it's so – it's weird to think back on now because I think, like, when I was in – college like even seeing a therapist at school like I never thought to bring up stuff like that and like the notebooks and the documentation because I just I'd never been conditioned to think of it as a problem or like not even or just as irregular and so I didn't even really ever bring it up or I probably would have gotten the diagnosis sooner it became an issue when it continued kind of like evolving and it wasn't until it became a physical tick in my early 20s that I had to get it you know under control and just figure out what it was just ahead the physical tick that developed and kept developing and landed Jamie in the emergency room Back with comedian and writer Jamie Loftus, in her childhood, OCD showed up as filling notebook after notebook with the minutia of her day. In young adulthood, it took a more dangerous turn. This was like I, in my, my first year living in 
Los Angeles was like, I mean, everyone's first year is horrible. <laughs> I, and I'm no exception to that where I, I think that it, it, things got out of control because I just like, didn't have a support system. I was, you know, like working this like weird job and barely making ends meet. I was working as like a fact checker at Playboy magazine and making like 10 bucks an hour. I don't know. It's just been like a wild, it, it was just a weird year. And so I, I started developing this tick where I would scratch at my skin when I was nervous and it became um, a numbers thing where it's like, I have to do it so many, like this many times in this many areas and then I can continue with my day. And so it wasn't until it manifested as something physical that was, oh, this is like very specific self-harm with rules and that went on for a couple of months and it was just like getting to the point where like it was impossible not to notice and it was you know very uncomfortable and like shameful and and just felt I don't I mean I think the scariest part about it outside of the physical manifestation of something like that was like I just didn't know what that was I was like I don't know why this is a thing and so it, it, it got to the point where it was like so bad and I, I, I had, and I didn't have health insurance at this point. So I, I, you know, tried to go to like some public clinics and didn't have a lot of luck because they just don't have the time to really like sit with you. So I was, you know, given some medication for something that I didn't have and that exacerbated the problem. And, you know, it, it, I, it got to the point where I used sort of like the last money I had to fly myself home because that's where my health insurance would work. Um, which is like so ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I felt, I feel, unfortunately I felt lucky that I was still young enough to be on my parents' health insurance or I really don't know what I would have done, but that sort of, once it got to the point where I, I had to tell, I talked to my brother about it and, and we sort of decided like, okay, it makes the most sense for me to go home, talk to my old therapist, see what's going on. And even then it took months. It took to the point where when I was back in Los Angeles, cause I don't know, it was like, it was, this is also a very, I guess, first year away thing where when I went home and I was like covered in scabs and like very out of control of everything, because you know, like how that stuff kind of spirals out where it just like, exacerbated everything once you're like covered in scabs and you don't know why like everything is going to suffer from that level of disorientation and it and also you know like seeing people who have known you your whole life react to seeing something like that is not it's not their fault but just like you know more shame and more stuff like that but and you're seeing it with fresh eyes yourself at that point right because it's like here you know I didn't know anyone well enough to say anything so I would just you know wear long sleeves and long pants in Los Angeles in June which is like and be like yeah what's up guys ready to do the comedy show you know (laughs) (laughs) let's not roll up our sleeves and get to work right 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 I'm like hope this venue is air conditioned (laughs) and I like yeah it's such a weird time to and it was also like the summer of 2016 so the world was like really out of control as well but, you know, my family was kind of like, do you want to, like, not live in California? Seems like it's not agreeing with you. And you were in college during all this? No, I had I had recently gotten out of college. I was 23 when okay. this was happening. So I was um, working at Playboy during the day and doing comedy at night and scratching every scratching square inch your- of my skin <laughs> throughout those and so how did it finally get diagnosed? I went to the emergency room. I just like, I felt like I had run out of options. My therapist at home was very well intentioned, but like I didn't really get any answers. Public health stuff wasn't leading anywhere. And so I figured out through like a Google hole that the one place I could use my parents' health insurance out of state is if you go to the emergency room. That's the only place you could get something covered. So the problem was I didn't know what to say when I got 
there. Like I didn't, I was like, I I'm covered in scabs. Like I just didn't know what to say. And this was another like unfortunate healthcare moment where I went to a emergency room and they were like, we can't let you in unless you say you're going to kill yourself. And I was like, I'm not going to. And they're like, okay, well, we can't let you in unless you say it. Like kind of like a wink, wink, like it's a password. Just say it. Yeah. And I got freaked out by that. And I was like, I'm leaving. This is like, this, how can you do that at a hospital? That's so fucked up. But eventually, you know, a couple of days pass and I'm like, I'll say it fine. But I went to a, I went to a different hospital and was very lucky that when I finally got in and, and saw the sort of psychiatrist or person on call that he specialized in OCD. And I talked to him for like an hour and a half and he was so kind and was just able to like pretty quickly give me a name for what was happening and then ask me questions and like sort of trace like, okay, you've all always had these, you know, habits and it, this is just the first time it's become untenable. And so that was how I, I first sort of got, got my diagnosis, which was actually, which was like horrible where it's like, you're in the hospital and covered in scabs and it's really embarrassing and confusing. But then also it was like, there's a name for this. And he's like, and we can start working on it like tomorrow right if you yeah. want. Yeah. And so that was like the first step and was really life changing for sure. Yeah. You must have heard of OCD before. Had you suspected that that might be what's going on? No, I think that it, at that time, at least I had a very like the very stereotypical view of what OCD was, which I think probably prevents a lot of people from getting a diagnosis where, I mean, I truly think my my mind around it was like, I can't have OCD. My apartment is dirty. <laughs> like my apartment's gross. So if I have OCD, I'm really bad at it because it's not clean in here. And I just didn't realize it could manifest with any obsessive habit until I had a name for it. And then I did exposure therapy with that same therapist who I met at the hospital ended up kind of taking me on, um, on sliding scale, which was like, I couldn't have done it otherwise. And I ended up working with him for like a year or so. And it was, it's helped me to this day. What happened in exposure therapy? So for exposure therapy, I, I didn't know what it was at all. And it was basically a series of figuring out what habits that were so second nature to me that fell under the umbrella of OCD at first, which was like kind of a painful, frustrating experience because you're like, well, this is just me. How can that be sick? You know, and how do I, you know, conceive of myself if this isn't a part of who I am? And so I think that was almost the, even more challenging than adjusting the habits. But it was like habits that I had developed around social media and like a lot of like checking, 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 checking things when there was no reason to and like searching for reasons to be anxious in which obviously it's like there's, you know, a little angry computer at my side at all times giving me reasons <laughs> to be anxious. You solve one anxiety and then you go looking for another anxiety once it's resolved. Right. And and so like uh, once we busted the physical stuff, I mean, that was like the first thing. But honestly, like once I knew that it was OCD and that I could get help, the physical stuff went away not instantly, but like pretty quickly after. Because I think it was the anxiety of not knowing what I was doing that sort of caused me to double down on doing it. So I, the, once the physical stuff had sort of stopped for me, we would just like do sessions where sometimes it felt silly, but it genuinely like helped of like, okay, we're gonna go on your phone and like just reorient the way I interact with my phone in a way that doesn't let 
how I'm like hardwired, completely let my brain get away from me. Going to give and, you some agency over the device. Right. Which I think every. I mean, having had that experience, I think that like everyone deserves an experience like that, whether they have OCD or not. Like, I think that I have turbocharged phone anxiety, but like everyone has it to some extent that is online too much. And it it did help sort of reorient how I felt about it. And it was like this exercise we would do where we would look at something or like something that I was hyper fixated on, whatever it was, and then just ask the question over and over of like, okay, what is stressing you out about this? And, you know, I would answer something like, you know, everyone hates me and blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, okay, well, if that is true, what is the worst case scenario? And then it would just be that question over and over and over. And you would always get to the core of like, even if this irrational fear of mine is true, things will still be okay. And then at the end, he's like, and also it's not true. <laughs> so it's like, you're fine, you know? And, and he, it was like difficult, but it was really, really helpful. I still, not every day am I successful in like retaining that, but it, but it definitely just made it possible to like be online at all. Cause it was getting to the point where I'm like, I, I can't function, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it gives you a, a healthier place to return to instead of an unhealthy place to return to. Yeah. And I know you've mentioned bipolar disorder in the past as well. Did those symptoms emerge in childhood as well, or did that come along later? That's something I'm kind of still navigating now, where I was by the same doctor, I like a few months after my OCD diagnosis, I was given a bipolar diagnosis that I was more surprised by, I guess, than but by OCD. Because once OCD was described to me, I was like, oh, 100%. Yes, that is that is the problem. So over the past six or seven years, I've kind of been trying to explore like what that means and like second opinions. I don't know. At this point, I'm not exactly sure where I fall there. But I did get treatment for it for for a while and i think that the habits that were picking up on that was just response to like a loss of control kind of stuff and it paired with ocd the ocd habits i already had so well that were just like all fixated on control and so it was just like that emotional response to losing it but now i honestly i i don't I don't know. I haven't spoken about it as much recently because I'm not really sure where where I'm at on it. But I do know that, you know, when I was in therapy for bipolar, you know, issues, it it certainly was like very helpful. And it helped, I think, manage the OCD stuff as well because they just, you know, paired uh, like, uh, you know, a garbage sandwich. Okay, so as for OCD, yes, absolutely. Bipolar, jury is still out on that one, but certainly issues, vulnerabilities. And I often wonder what makes someone who may have mental health vulnerabilities get up on stage to tell jokes to strangers, some of whom have been drinking. Why, despite all that vulnerability, do you do stand-up? We're back in a moment. Hi, I'm Janet Varney, and just like you, I survived high school. And we're not alone. On my podcast, The JV Club, I invite some of my friends to share the highs and lows of their teen years, like moments with Aisha Tyler. But when you're a kid, the stakes are just pretty low. Go to school, try not to get in trouble, get laid. Jamila Jamil. I watched television probably every waking hour during that time, and I was shit-faced on medicine. And Dave Holmes. We talked and talked, and then everybody left. It was just us two, and I was like, I love you. Learn how you two can be a functioning adult after the drama and heartbreak of high school. Every week on the JV Club with Janet Varney. Find it on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a judgment-free show. Hi, I'm Biz, host of One Bad Mother. 
Whether you're a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. I signed my stepson up for a camp that is actually in another state. I feel really stupid, and I don't think we're going to get the money back. And then he found out that the car manual is a book about cars, so now he's reading our car manual. We So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Download One Bad Mother on MaximumFun.org, and yes, there will be swears. Back with Jamie Loftus. She's a comedian and writer, also podcast maker and host. Her podcast, My Year in Mensa, is about joining the high IQ society and people being pretty horrible to her. There's bullying, doxing, verbal abuse. She talks about all of it. And she also does stand-up, which can be a pretty cruel place as well. Interpersonally, I, I am pretty shy and I'm like not good at introducing myself to people. I'm not good at approaching people. I don't have a really outgoing personality when I'm just like hanging out really at all. And so when I started doing comedy, it became like, well, this is the way that I can talk to people. And I had all these experiences. And I also on Monday had this experience because I still like (laughs) struggle with it. Whereas like there's, you know, a bunch of comics that I was like, when, like, these people are so talented. Like, I want to say hi, but I was like, totally could could not. And but then after my set, and after, you know, I've successfully spoken to people, it's like, now we can talk because I'm no longer like a freak who is like, in the corner of the room. And they're like, does she work here? Like, what is going on? (laughs) Who is this person? You know, because I, I just struggle with being like, here I am, you know, it's just like not <laughs> my so so creating kind of a simulation where that has to be me makes it easier to meet people and interact with people. And I think that that's always been that's not like my motivating reason for doing stand up. But once I started doing stand up, I was like, oh, this actually works great for me because I don't know how to talk to people before, but after I can do it. I always think about something Dana Gould told me, who's a Boston comedian originally. The best. Yeah. The best. And he, he said, you know, and he has struggled with anxiety forever. He, he says it stand up is the perfect situation because you can you can go up there. You know what you're going to say. You know, other people aren't going to say anything. And then mm-hmm. when it's all over, you can go back to the motel room and drink vodka and so it's everybody wins <laughs> it's a, it's right, a per- perfect right. controlled social situation without without variables having having the heart out is also very very helpful and like having it yeah it does feel like kind of like a a simulation where you're like okay i know how this has to end and like there's i just i i like the dynamics of stand up a lot for for that reason and it took, I mean, it took me a long time to even be able to to do it. I did like, you know, plays in high school and stuff like that. But I just sort of wasn't struggling with those issues in the same way in high school as I was when I was really young. And then in college in my 20s, I think, were sort of when those issues were at their at their peak. In middle school and high school, I was too concerned with like the fact that I was like wearing a back brace. Like I was like, this is this is enough of an issue. You know, we'll get back to the mental health problems. We'll circle back. Did you have to wear a back brace because your backpack was full of hundreds of notebooks of information (laughs) about what people were wearing? I would like to I would like to say on the record, yes, that is exactly the reason. (laughs) Precisely the reason we've made a breakthrough here today. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then you've created these seasons of of podcasts that are just really fascinating and I've I've encouraging people to listen to your podcast about Mensa, about Lolita, about the comic strip Kathy and the the kind of the meaning of Kathy. How did you get to that place because there's a lot of things that are funny in those shows but they're not expressly funny shows how did that come about for you uh that was like it was a mix of stuff like a bunch of interesting accidents in a row that was like oh this is a cool 
thing because I I really when I started doing comedy and like comedy writing, well, it just like wasn't ex- not what I was expecting my life to become. But I like completely fell in love with it and also felt like I don't know. I like always had had this interest in journalism and my dad was a journalist and I spent a lot of time <laughs> taking notes on stuff and you know I, so I was yes oh you took notes really yeah you know I was like okay I uh I so it Smart. ended up being like this kind of <laughs> no I mean uh it's so I'm going home next week and I'm like I'm gonna see I'm gonna see the notebook pile it's still mm. there it's still fuzzy <laughs> but yeah, it it was it felt like a fun way to channel kind of originally with like Lolita and the Kathy podcast and Ghost Church that I just finished. It was like a great way to channel nervous energy into something productive because my year in Mensa, I mean, that was like a whole separate weird accident that just continually spiraled out <laughs> until I was like, I think I just have to make something with this because otherwise... Uh, what have I been doing with the my time? <laughs> you know, yeah, um, <laughs> kind of make a product by the end of it. Yeah, but with with the like really really research intensive ones, the first two were made completely in lockdown, and it was just like, I know, I mean, along with many many other people struggling with mental health, like once I was inside, everything was exacerbated, and my relationship with my phone totally spiraled out emotionally you know shut down and like my my partner and I at the time like we weren't working and I just a lot of the ways that my OCD is always manifested it's like I cannot relax it is very very difficult for me to just like sit down and like exist so I I didn't feel like I had access to like that benefit of quarantine. So I was just looking for like, well, where can I put this energy that isn't just stressing me out, stressing my partner out in this inescapable, you know, pod that we're in. And so I was, you know, able to channel that energy into these podcasts. And one of the ways, I mean, it's kind of cool because it goes back to like when I was doing exposure therapy with with that amazing therapist like all those years ago and I think I had like kind of the common misunderstanding that I'm like oh I'm gonna get rid of this like this is gonna go away and he's like no we just need to find a way for you to function alongside it like and like we can get the harmful stuff to go away and this these kinds of projects I feel like are the best example I've been able to find of like working alongside my OCD in a way that is like feels good and isn't harmful to me or anyone in my life. And because it's like, I definitely uh, lock in on these topics and like, it's very important to me of like, I have to know every single thing there is to know. No stone shall be unturned. And then we will synthesize the information. There's a lot of note taking involved. And you don't really get that in comedy. And so it just felt like a way to like kind of scratch that itch that's always been kind of a a part of me in a way that felt productive and like made me happy and not ashamed or stressed or sad. Is the fact that these are limited run series an intentional thing to to kind of help you not overly fixate and not you know stay on one thing for years and years that there's a beginning, middle and an end? Yes, um, very much so, because I know that, yeah, I mean, sort of much like the controlled social situation where I know where it begins and I know where it ends. And that works great for me. Kind of same deal with this show. Yeah. It's like, I know that there's a start and a finish and, you know, I can really like channel everything into this topic for like six months, but then it, there reaches a point where it has to be over and you have to like take a break and take a breath and like remember that you're yourself and you're not a topic or a document yes yeah that you can hit <laughs> you can hit send on the file and it goes up and then it's then it's done yeah and yeah. obviously 
in a perfect world, you never would have had to go through all the note-taking and scratching an emergency room to get to the creative success you've had. You know, I'm I'm not a believer that, oh, I want to be crazy because I'll make really good comedy. No. 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 no, no. It's also it's like anyone could do what I do without OCD yeah. like, and have. So yeah. in no way can it be attributed to the, you know, success or failure of anything. Right. But do you pull on on lessons you've learned and, and things you've learned maybe maybe the hard way and kind of the accumulated wisdom of, of the difficulties that you've had in your creative work? Yeah. I mean, I think particularly with OCD, it's been like such a an ongoing journey because I still, you know, fuck it up and go too far in one direction sometimes and sort of need, you know, I, I'm lucky that now, you know, I've lived in California for like six years and I do have a support system here now and I do have people that I see regularly who can be like um check yourself like you're you're maybe doing the the thing uh kind of <laughs> you're, you're different today than you were before right they're like this is a lot of uh loose paper around and you know <laughs> things like that and you need you need people like that in your life who will tell you there's too much loose paper around but yeah I, I think that over time like learning how to manage whatever, just like swim alongside the OCD habits and not completely try to push it out of my life forever. Cause anytime I've tried to do that, it like has just created more anxiety and like, it is a part of who I am, but I, it's like, whatever, like the daily struggle to be like, but it doesn't define who I am and I can exist alongside it. And there are, parts of it that I can try to sort of be like, okay, you're going to, you you work for me today. And that's how we're going to learn everything about psychic mediums in Florida. So, <laughs> Yeah. See, I mean that the, you work for me is a really, a really cool way of looking at it because, because you weren't the boss for, for a while and, and now you are the right. boss. Yeah. And there are some days where I'm, still the employee and those days are rough and i i'm very very lucky to be able to be in therapy for it ongoing which i i was out for a little while and then during the pandemic you know as with many people it it was really uh flaring up again and so i've been back in therapy for two years which is a huge privilege to be able to use that as a as a coping mechanism and a way of checking in with myself about it but yeah that's what that's what's worked for me is like okay this this guy's always going to be here but i am the boss you are the employee you know (laughs) (laughs) so you're going back to to brockton soon you said yeah my cousin's getting married so go home that's great and you're gonna see the notebooks I always, yeah, I always visit the notebooks. And my dad's always like, do you want to take them with you? I'm like, no, but I also don't want to throw them away. Like they are, because at this point, I do like that I'm at a point where they're not really like triggering. They're just kind of funny. And you're just like, wow, we really, we really did that when we could have been making friends, huh? Like it's just. (laughs) Possibly playing sports or something, but. Right, yeah. Learning a skill, for example. (laughs) I was not becoming a better writer. I was just really strengthening my right hand over the course of years. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, now now it's sort of like a fun thing to revisit because it doesn't control me in the way that I didn't even realize it was controlling me when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a reminder of how far you've come. I say as I'm writing down black t-shirt. Yeah. um, (laughs) (laughs) Receding hairline. Black headphones. <laughs> there you go. That's Jamie Loftus. Spend some time on our YouTube channel. It's fun. I was thinking about when Jamie was obsessively filling those notebooks and how everyone thought she was being observant. Oh, young Jamie wants to be a writer. That's great. It's interesting to me how adults tend to view the mental health issues of kids. I think the tendency is to dismiss the possibility that there are actual problems present. 
to not see the kids as fully complex humans equipped with the complex possibilities that that entails. And so what we do, and I'm not singling out Jamie's parents here, a lot of adults do this, they recontextualize the behavior into something both simple and pleasant. It's nice to recast the young person as a kid reporter or aspiring novelist. And I think adults sometimes see peculiar activities as a prelude to something positive later on, a cool career or the development of a talent. And maybe sometimes that's the case, but maybe that's just wishful thinking sometimes too. What's tricky is that kids don't always know what is odd behavior because they have nothing to compare it to. So filling notebooks makes a kind of sense. And let's take a moment to uh, to find our center just a little bit. Laura House is with us once again. Hello, Laura. Hi. You know, I, I somebody asked me the other day, do you do you tell Laura how long the silence should be, or does she tell you, or is there a clock running? And I said, <laughs> no, I don't think it's like that. We just sort of do it kind of organically. We do, yeah. I I was actually, I think about that sometimes because I'm is that is this. Because I have thoughts too. I think the yeah. number one <laughs> question people have is like, "Oh no, I I can't meditate. I always have thoughts." And I, my main message, like my ministry, is to say, "You're going to have thoughts. It's totally normal in this in this meditation to have thoughts. You're not doing it wrong." But my thoughts are, "Is that too long? Is this too short? Is this too?" And then I'm just like, well, uh -huh. "What?" I just try to. I have to go back to the breath too. Like, why don't you just calm down? Oh, this feels right. We'll see it. <laughs> can always edit in more quiet, I guess. If you yeah, it. it's not that hard to do. <laughs> I mean, we have unlimited power here in, in audio. Yeah, certainly John Cage tried something similar. Um, <laughs> we could put a really intense ticking clock on it, I guess. We could. That would be <laughs> cruel and fascinating. Notice your breath. Don't mind this. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just jump on in for however long then. Okay, so here's how we get started. Just get comfortable. Um, it's not. This is not for driving. We're going to close our eyes. So let's get comfortable in a seat. Ideally, you have some back support there and can have your head upright. And close your eyes. Your breath is already happening. So just notice it. Might be the first time today or in weeks or ever. Just notice it. And thoughts will come. It's very natural, normal. As we meditate, your mind will wander into those thoughts. And when you notice that, just notice your breath again easily, gently, like you're glancing in the direction of your breath. And just let go. Go ahead and open your eyes slowly. I, I got a little self-conscious of the time. <laughs> Somebody upstairs in my house dropped something in the middle yeah, of that. I heard a bump. I heard a bump and then I just practiced kind of letting it go in nice. and out. Yeah, yeah. Not nice. so How'd bad. you feel about that? I felt good about it. I'm a little yeah. curious what got knocked over because I yeah. might have to go clean that up later. But, uh, you know, we'll just uh, roll with it. Yeah. Let me know if you need to go check on somebody. <laughs> Laura House is the co-host, along with Annabelle Gerwich, of the Tiny Victories podcast here on Maximum Fun. Laura, thanks. Thank you. On the next Depression Mode, 
kids will be kids. That's the line that some adults use to dismiss bullying. And Shane thinks that's some bullshit. It certainly started with the, you know, the sort of name calling and the, you know, the poking and the ribbing and the making fun. But at a certain point, bullying is too cute of a word for what actually goes on. At a certain point, you cross the line into what is actual assault. Poet Shane Coizan is with us. If people support our show, we can keep having a show. If not, we can't. That's the existential question there. Thank you for supporting the show if you already have. If you haven't yet, it's okay. No big deal. You can go and do that easily. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Be sure to hit subscribe on this show and give us five stars and write rave reviews. All of that helps us get the show out into the world where it can help people. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies, all sorts of great discussions going on there. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, Credits listeners. I know a dog named Poppy. He lives a couple doors down. And the thing about Poppy, he just doesn't really care for people. He loves other dogs, just doesn't find people all that interesting. Doesn't growl at them or bark at them or just sort of keeps his distance because he prefers dogs. I've never understood a dog more than Poppy. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We got booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings. No one knows the reason, maybe there's no reason. I just keep believing. No one knows the answer, maybe there's no answer. I just keep on dancing. This is Mary from Maine, and I am cheering you on. You got this. I know you can do it. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.